Hey, how you doing? It's good to see everybody. Um, I became a Christian on May 29th of 1993. It was in Boston in my brother's kitchen. Uh, he led my wife and I to Christ. We were just dating at the time. And uh, the first thing I did after I prayed to receive Jesus, to forgive me of my sins, and uh, to change my destiny eternally, was I went to a baseball game. Uh, because that just seemed like the right thing to do. No, I, I was in Boston visiting. I had tickets for a Red Sox game that night. And uh, so we, we went, my, my wife and I, to, uh, to see the Sox that night. And um, it, was, uh, it was a great game. And, uh, but I do have to tell you this to kind of make sense of the story. Um, prior to becoming a Christian, um, I had probably the worst mouth of anyone um, I've ever known. I mean, like I cussed like a sailor. Um, if, if some, I remember one time my wife saying, like, do you really have to cuss that much? And so she's like, why don't you try not cussing? And I just didn't talk because I really didn't know what to say. If I couldn't cuss, I didn't really know how to communicate. And uh, so anyway, I get to the game and um, Roger Clemens was pitching. This is what he was pitching for the Red Sox before he decided to sign with the Yankees and start worshiping Satan. Um, and uh, so <laughs> and I say that kind of joking. And uh, but uh, also at this game, they're playing the te- the Sox are playing the Texas Rangers. And uh, funny enough, at the game, uh, President George H. W. Bush uh, Bush Senior was at that game, and probably because his son George W. Bush was the part owner of the, of the Rangers. And um, so, but I remember the Sox were winning. They ended up winning that game, but they uh, the, the umpire made a call I didn't like at one point, and the whole crowd went into an uproar. And I stood up in my typical fashion when I heard something I didn't like, and I just I was like, "Why you?" And I was about ready to just unleash a bomb of a string of about twenty words that you know I can't repeat in church. And um, and I just I don't know I, I just stopped myself for how for whatever reason I, I just. I stopped myself and I just kind of like looked around at the madness that was happening all around me. And uh, I just sat back down. Now, my wife, who had, you know, we had been dating for about six months, five, six months at the time. Um, she, she looked at me and it was, it was like, who is this person? And uh, that I had kind of stopped myself. And I turned to her and I said, uh, I said, I don't think God wants me to talk like that anymore. And that was it. I mean, I never like, you know, struggled with it ever again. I mean, I had been a Christian for less than three hours, um, I had led, read very little of the Bible, um, and God had already begun changing me. Because there's this verse in Ephesians chapter 4, I put it in the notes that we gave you. If you haven't taken them out, I'd encourage you to take out your notes. Um, but here, here's what your notes say in Ephesians 4. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, that it might impart grace to the hearers. I didn't know that verse. I didn't know any verse. I didn't know anything. Um, And yet, here's the thing that was so interesting to me. Even though I had only been a Christian for, you know, less than three hours, even though I didn't really know anything about the Bible, God had already begun changing me. And But here was the problem that I learned as the days and weeks and months went on. There were other areas of my life that I wanted God to work on, that I wanted God to change. But they didn't happen as instantaneously or as spontaneously as my mouth cleansing had gone. And I don't know if, if you're kind of with me on this, but I, I don't know if, if you kind of realize that that kind of happens to all of us to some degree. We become a Christian. God starts working in our lives. Some things begin to change. But then there's other things that seem to happen a little bit slower than the stuff that happens right off the bat and, and, and initially. 
And we kind of say, like, what's why is that? I mean, what's the deal with that? I mean, I mean, honestly, I mean, there's a couple of reasons, I believe. I believe is that there's some things that are a little bit easier to change than others. I think another reason is that there's some areas that we're more open for God to change us than other areas that we're holding on to a little tighter. But see, I think the reason why this message is important for you, the same reason that it's important for me, is because if we really understand the goal that God has in transforming our lives and molding our lives and shaping our lives in, 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 in a certain way, that we'll never look at circumstances the same way again. We'll never look at people the same way again. We'll never look at difficulties the same way again. Instead, we'll realize what God is doing as He's changing us and transforming us and shaping us and molding us into a certain way. The things in our lives that we once maybe saw as a curse, we'll actually look at as something that God is using to shape us and mold us and transform us and define us. See, the Bible says this in in Romans chapter 8 in your notes. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, think about that for a moment, if you would. And we know that all things are working together for good. But here's the question. What good? Like the difficulties that we experience, the challenges we experience, the disappointments that we experience, as well as the joys and the triumphs and all and, and, and all of that. All of it's working together for good. But how? For what reason? To what end? You see, that's Romans 8.28, but Romans 8.29 gives us the answer to the question. It says this in your notes. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. All these things are working together for good, Romans 8.28, so that Romans 8.29 can happen. So that you and I can be transformed, reshaped, remolded into the image of Jesus. Because God's goal for your life is God's goal for my life is that we would look like Jesus. And that's what all these things are happening. That's why this whole molding and shaping and transformation is happening. And that's what God does with this guy named Gideon. That's what this guy named Gideon is going to find out. A guy that's fearful, wimpy, and run-of-the-mill. God is going to turn into one of Israel's greatest heroes. How? the same thing that we've been talking about this process of transformation and here's why this is so important for you why it's important for me is because when you see how god is working in gideon's life you know what you're gonna you're gonna feel like oh i know how that feels i've been there oh see what god is doing with him oh i i know i remember when god started working on that in me And you're going to start seeing God's fingerprints all over Gideon in this situation as you're going to then be able to look and say, the very thing that God's doing with Gideon is the same thing God's doing with me. And it's just now you begin to realize that maybe this difficulty, this challenge isn't just a random thing that's happening. Maybe, maybe what's happening is that God is doing something because he's working all things together for good. So that we can look like Jesus. Judges chapter 6 is where we're going to begin, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And so it was, whenever Israel had sown... The Midianites would come up. Also, Amalekites and people from the east would come up against them. 
and they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming up in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up out of the house up from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppress you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I also said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, what do I want to share with you? Listen, so important. There's four ways I believe that God, four things that God uses to change us. And here's the first one in these verses that we've read. Number one is that God uses difficult circumstances to change us. He uses difficult circumstances. As much as I would like to tell you otherwise, he uses difficult circumstances to change us. A few weeks ago, I was flying home from a trip and I was going through security at the airport. And uh, there was this one line that was moving really fast. And there was this other line that had about four times as many people and was moving at a snail's pace. And so I, being the enlightened person that I am, went into the line that had maybe less than 20 people in it. Um, and I just stayed away from that, that big line. And so uh, this, other lane, this other line is moving really fast. It's going well. And I'm looking and I'm like, you know, well, I wish people would just pay attention. I'm, and, I'm, and I'm looking and it's like people just... And I'm like, there's this short line and then there's this really long line and people are just getting into the long line and not even realizing that there's two lines here that you could get in. And so I'm there and I'm on the phone with my wife, letting her know that I'm going to be home in a couple of hours. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm there telling her this whole thing. And I'm like, I wish people would just pay attention. Their lives would be so much better if they just paid attention. But these, you know, everybody just wants to get in the long line. So then, but then I noticed something that kind of was a little disconcerting to me. So I told her I'd have to call her back. I hung up with her. Because I noticed that in the line that I was in, everyone was wearing lanyards, except me. And I thought that was a little bit interesting, because my next line thought was, how do I get a lanyard so I can stay in this line? But then I also noticed something else. Everyone else in the line that I was in was wearing a uniform. Um, now, mind you, I don't, you got to understand, I only had like, you know, this is about, it's about six in the morning. I had only slept for about three hours. And so I'm, I'm half asleep as all this is happening. And... Um, so I, I'm I, I'm in line, and then I realize like he's wearing a Dunkin' Donuts uniform, and the guy in front of me's got a Burger King uniform, and the people behind me have some like security uniforms, and I'm thinking like I think this is the employee line. <laughs> I just had this moment, you know, and so I go to the guy in front of me that's got that's uh, in the in the Burger King uniform, and I'm like, hey, uh, is this the line for employees? And he looks at me like, yeah, which his eyes also implied like, yes, you idiot. Um, and uh, and so I said, uh, yeah, and I said, um, and so then my next question was like, I said, so uh, you work at Burger King, huh? And he said, yeah. And I said, um, you guys hiring? And uh, 
And, and I say, because, you know, I really want to stay in this line and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to stay in this line. And uh, and so he said, uh, no, we're not. And uh, and I said, I guess I'm going to go ahead and leave now. And he's like, I don't know why you're asking my permission. Anyway, so I just left and I get in the other line. Now, here's the thing. In this whole time that I had been waiting in the line, like the, the line, the other line had gotten about twice as long. Now, here's the thing you have to know about me. I have a problem with patience. I'm a fairly impatient person. God is trying to work patience in my life. But as I try to tell God, God, I would love for you to work patience in my life. I just don't have the time right now. Um, And this is the problem that I have. And so, you know what God does? He puts me in situations where I have to wait twice as long as the average human for anything. All the time, I I have to wait like... I could pick a line in traffic that's moving. The, the second that I get in the other lane to go, that lane stops. Like, put it in park. We're not going anywhere. Then I say, all right, forget it. I'll get in this lane. That lane stops. Eventually, I just give up. Because then you want to get to the front, and you're like, what happened? Nothing. Nothing. God has been doing all of this just for me. It's like, this, you're not getting home as fast as you wanted. Why? You need to learn something. And I'm telling you this, this thing, and, and, here, and here's the thing, is that I would love to tell you that God only uses like really nice things to change us, but sometimes He uses things that bug us, sometimes He uses things that are even difficult to change us, because God is in the business of changing us. When you think about the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis, I mean, think about this. This guy gets sold into slavery by his brothers. That's bad enough. You know, like... My brothers don't like me. All right, you can get over that. My brothers hate me. I can still live with that. My brothers hated me so much they plotted against me to sell me into slavery so they'd never see me again. That's a little tougher to deal with, right? But then he gets sold into slavery. Then, you know, if you know the story in Genesis, if not, you can, you can read it later. But it's like this girl tries to come on to him. He says no. She says that he tried to do something to her. So then after being a slave, he then gets thrown into prison for a couple of years. And then what happens is, I'm sure this guy sitting in a prison cell, he's like, I tried to do the right thing, and it got me imprisoned. And, I, and I'm sure he's wondering, like, God, what are you doing in my life? What did I do? Whatever it is, I repent so that I can leave prison because I didn't do anything. And then all of this kind of happens, right, all to get him to the place where Pharaoh has a dream, and then he is able to interpret the dream, and he becomes the number two man in Egypt because he recognizes that there's a famine that's coming. And this famine is going to destroy them if there isn't some amazing leadership that takes place. And not only does it save the country, of the land of Egypt, but it saves his family. And that was the, very, the most important thing that God was doing. And you see, Joseph looks back at the end of his life. After his father has died and he looks and his brothers think that now that our father is gone, he's going to like give us the restitution, the retribution for everything that we've done to him. And here's what he says. So amazing. He says this in Genesis chapter 50. But as for you, you meant evil against me. This is what he says to his brothers. He says, but God meant it for good. I mean, is that not one of the most amazing verses you're going to read? After the whole thing is all all said and done, Joseph looks on and he says, I get it now. God was doing something in my life, molding, shaping, transforming, changing me so that I could become the man that I'm supposed to be. So in the very moment that God wanted to use me, he could so that I could save some people. And listen, this is the issue that happens with Israel. Issue, uh, Israel now falls into the spin cycle of sin once again. We've talked about this in the past, right? That they would start out serving God. Then things wouldn't go well. And then they would start serving idols. 
When they started serving false gods, God would sell them into uh, bondage and slavery. And then the, the slavery would get so bad that they would call out to the Lord. Then they would call out to God. God would send them a deliverer. God, the deliverer would save them. And then they'd go back to serving the Lord again. And here's the thing that we see is the cycle of sin over and over and over again. And now Israel finds themselves in the spin cycle again of serving other gods. But it's only when they experience the full weight of their sin and their decisions that God actually, that they heard, God, that they called out to Him. Did you notice in verse 6 that it says that they were greatly impoverished because of the Midianites? And then it says that they called out to the Lord because of the Midianites. It wasn't until they felt the weight of it. Had there been no Midianites, there probably would have been no repentance. A few years ago, um, we get a call at the office that there's a guy in our church who had been in a very serious motorcycle accident. And he had called to see if someone could come to the hospital to pray for him uh, and maybe anoint him with oil to, to pray for him. And um, so I went to the hospital to, to visit him. And I walked in and the guy just started crying. And uh, as, I, as I did, uh, I, I sat down and uh, just started talking to him and and he started telling me about how he had, he had come to faith in Jesus and become a Christian. And then um, he started going, kind of going, just started walking away from God. He started going back to his old life and the life that he had known before Jesus had forgiven him and saved him and begun to transform his life. And he says, I just, I just walked away. And he says, and then I got into this almost fatal car accident, uh, motorcycle accident and, and broke my leg and, and, I'm, and I should be dead. But I'm going to make a full recovery. And and here's what I and this is when he, he really starts starts crying and he says, you know, here here here's the deal. I mean, he says, I'm I'm back. I'm telling you this because I'm back. I'm telling you this because I know that God is getting my attention and I want you to know that He's got it. And I said to him, I said, listen, if breaking your leg in a almost fatal motorcycle accident doesn't get your attention i don't know what will but he said i want you to know he's got my attention and i'm back and and here's the thing that's important for us to know the same thing is true for us i mean what does it take for god to get our attention what does it take to kind of wake us up that we're that we're asleep and sometimes we wonder why things aren't going well and this is the reason is because God's trying to get us back on track. He's trying to wake us up. He's trying to get us out from the sleep and the slumber that we're in so we can get, get back to Him. And sometimes the only thing that we will hear is if a difficult circumstance comes into our lives and it causes us to rethink, to refocus, and get back to Him. You see, here's, the, here's my guess, is that in a church our size, is that every week there are those who are here for that very same reason, is that you've walked away from the Lord. And then something difficult and challenging has come into your life. And that has been the thing that kind of re, that woke you up and, and, and was a spark to your spiritual life that maybe you had let lie dormant for a while. And that became the thing that turned you around and caused you to realize that maybe there's more to life than just what it is that we were doing. And here's the other thing that's important for us to know. Is that if we experience this, sometimes we think, well, I'm experiencing this because God doesn't care about me and God doesn't love me. And what if the opposite is true? What if these things happen because God loves us so much he just can't bear the thought of allowing us to stay the way that we are? Um, Because here's, if God disciplines us, and all of us experience the discipline of God on occasion, what it means is this. What it means is that we're actually a child of his. 
because if God, you know, I don't know about you, but I only discipline my kids, right? I don't go around disciplining other people's kids. I let their parents deal with that. And you probably say, I'm going to take care of my kids because they're my responsibility. Other people's kids will let their parents deal with it. Well, that's the same, that's the same uh, thing that God does. God disciplines his kids. Listen to what the Bible says. It's in your notes in Romans chapter, or pardon me, Hebrews chapter 12. It says, endure hardship as discipline, because God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained by it. So what does God use? He uses difficult circumstances as one of the tools in his toolbox to change us, to reshape us, to transform us, to draw us back. But you know, God uses something else. I want you to, to meet the hero of the story in verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, and which uh, belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in, a, in the winepress in order to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not our fathers, did not the Lord bring us out of the land of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now pause there, please, and give me your attention. Here's the second thing I want to share with you. Is that God uses his calling to change us. His calling. That God doesn't just call us and see us as we are, but everything more that we're able to become. Now, what I want to do is give you a little bit of background to the story, because this story that we're about, the story that we're reading, it's like, it's really quite hilarious if you understand the context in which it's written in. Um, let me explain to you what it says. It says that Gideon is threshing wheat, okay? Wheat was generally threshed, and I'm going to explain what threshing is, um, on what was called a threshing floor. A threshing floor is an area that was sloped. Okay, and so let's say this stage was our threshing floor. It's a little bit small, but let's just say it is. And it would be a little bit sloped. So this would be the high side and then this would be the low side. And we would come to this first side and we'd have all of our wheat that we had picked. We'd have a big pile of it. And then what we would do is we'd take this long fork, which is called a winnowing fork, and we would just start throwing wheat up in the air. And what would happen is every time we threw this, and this would happen, we'd have to do this for hours. Every time you'd start throwing the wheat up in the air, every time you did that, there was a shell to the wheat which was called the chaff. And every time you did that, it would cause the chaff to, 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 to open up, which is what the wheat, which is what we really needed to cook and feed our family and all that. That's what we really wanted. So you would just throw that in the air. Well, here's the thing, is that the breeze would come, and as you threw it up in the air, you'd be throwing the wheat and the chaff in the air, and the breeze would come, and it would carry the chaff, because the chaff was, remember, just like a shell. And the, and the, the chaff weighed less than the wheat did, so you'd throw it up in the air, the wind would come, and the wheat would land because it was too heavy. But then the chaff would blow all the way to the other side of the threshing floor. So when you were done threshing wheat, you would have two piles, one on either side. You would have a pile of wheat that you were ready to cook with. And you would have a pile of chaff, which is really good for nothing. And it would just get burned. 
But here's the thing. What we just read is that they, were, they weren't threshing wheat. Every time they would thresh wheat or have any kind of harvest, the Midianites, the Malachites, and flashlights, all these people, they would come, uptights, they were all coming, and here's what they would do. Here's what they would do. They would come in, and after Israel had, had done all their, their harvesting, they would just come in and take what they wanted and leave them with nothing. So here's the thing that happens. Gideon, instead of threshing on a threshing floor, he's threshing in a wine press. Well, I mean, a wine press was like a vat. That was in the ground. And all, I mean, you know, and so what you would do is you would put this, this, uh, you would put grapes in there and you would start just, you would step on the grapes and that's what would begin to create the, the, the wine and you'd be, you would draw the, the wine out and then it would later get fermented and all that. But to use it to thresh wheat, I mean, it, it was only the poorest of the poor because they had no access to a threshing floor. They would put wheat in a uh, wine press and they would just beat it with a stick. Well, you could just imagine mixing the shell and the wheat. What a tedious process this was. Well, what the Bible says is that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. He's in the wine press, beating this thing with a stick, and because he's afraid of the Midianites. So he's afraid of these people. He's basically inside a hole, threshing wheat. And the angel of God shows up, and it says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor, brave man. You're hiding in a hole because you're afraid. And God shows up calling you like Braveheart or something. I am William Wallace. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I don't think so. You know, I mean, this is like this wimpy guy. And then he's like, oh, you know, and it's like he doesn't even Gideon doesn't even deal with that. And he's like, well, you know, where's God and how can God be with me? He doesn't even deal with mighty man of valor because he knows he's a wimp. He says, well, how can we say that the Lord, the Lord is with me? God's not even with us. And see, the, the, the problem is, and this is the thing that, that's, that, that's, that's so amazing to me, that's, that's so important, is that why would God even call him mighty man of valor? Ah, that's what we're getting to. Because the God that we serve doesn't just see us as we are. Because our God sees us for everything we're able to become. You see, my friends, the God that we serve is a God who's, who's bigger than time and space. The God that we serve is now able to look at us and not just see everything that we are, just like we can see who, each other. But God is able to look at us and see everything that we're able to, to become if we will submit ourselves to Him, if we'll allow His Spirit to work in us, if we'll allow Him to change us and transform us. Do you understand that? That God doesn't see, He doesn't see someone who's addicted. You know what He sees? He speaks life into that person and He speaks to them as someone who's free. God looks at someone, not just someone who's stuck in sin. He sees someone who's walking in victory. He doesn't see someone who's consumed by anger and rage and hate. He sees someone and he looks at them and he, sees, and he speaks to them as though they're loving and self-controlled. And that's the thing that's so amazing about our God. Is that he doesn't see us just as we are. He sees us as everything that we're capable of becoming. As we submit ourselves to him. Well, look at what happens, what God asks him to do in verse 15. It says, so he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. 
And do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. And so Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and leavened bread from an ephah of flour. And meat he put in a basket and he put broth in a pot. And he brought it to them and laid it under the terebinth tree and presented it to him. And the angel of the Lord said, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on the rock and pour out the broth. And so he did. And then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose from out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it is still in Ophrah of the Abezrites. And now it came to pass that night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of, the, of uh, the seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is in it, or that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image in which you cut down. And so Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day. He did it at night. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the third thing I want you to know, is that God uses sacrifice to change us. He uses sacrifice to change us. Um, I, I was A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with some of the guys in the band, and we were talking about being a musician, and there's a lot of young guys like in our youth, that are, that are learning and they want to be musicians. And so we were talking about this. That, um, so it's like they were asking us, like, how do you become a better musician? And it really, there's only one way to you become a good musician. You have to sacrifice. And you sacrifice just about everything to be a good musician. And, uh, and we were talking about this, that the only way, reason that we, most of us actually got good at our instruments is because we didn't get that many dates in high school. And... Uh, and that's part of the reason why we actually started playing instruments so we could join a band which would get us more dates in high school. But that, you know, but had we gotten the dates first, we probably wouldn't have been that good. Because when I was in high school, I mean, I, I, I bought a bass guitar on my 15th birthday and I started playing. And by the way, that was four years ago. Um, and, uh, and I mean, and I was playing four to five hours a day. Um, and, and, here, and I got to the point where um, in, in, when I took music theory one when I was a junior... And then I took music theory two in high school when I, when I was a senior. And um, I aced music theory one. I aced all my music classes. But then because of budget cuts, they put music theory one and music theory two together. And so, they, um, and so what happened was that he had to teach these new guys. The teacher had to teach these new guys and music theory two. Well, the, the music teacher thought I had some, I don't have time to describe it, explain it, but he thought I had something that's called perfect pitch. I don't have perfect pitch. I have what's called very good relative pitch but I'm not going to bore you with geek music talk. Um, but anyway, but I didn't have perfect pitch, but he thought I did for a time, and uh, I quickly disappointed him. And, uh, but, but here's what he did, is that he, there was all these new, you know, there was like a group of new guys, and then there was a bunch of us that had come back. 
And I had done so well in music theory, he actually told me to teach music theory one to these, got, to these, uh, to these new kids that, that were coming in. And uh, his only, um, you know, he just, you know, teach them kind of basic chord progression and all that stuff. And um, his only, he just instructed me, you're not allowed to teach them any heavy metal. Uh, to which I'm like, why even play an instrument if you can't teach them that? Anyway, um, but the thing that was interesting to me is, and I still have some of my report cards in a file. I don't even know why I torture myself with such things. But I have a report card, and sometimes we'll be going through some paperwork, and um, my wife will see some of my old report cards, and it's like A's and F's. I mean, literally, it's that extreme. Um, it's like, you know, all my music classes and P.E. are A's, and then, like, you know, English math, science, you know, things that you never use, um, uh, you know, because <laughs> like who's going to speak, talk or have to know anything about what happened in the past. Um, and, and so um, or read. Uh, and so anyways, and those were like D's and F's. And, and, and my wife is like, what happened to you? You had the capacity to do well. You have A's. And then she'll say, like, by the way, not my kids. She'll always throw that in, like as if I'm OK with that. But anyway, um, but she'll say, not my kids. And uh but, and she'll say, like, what happened? And I'll say, listen, it really comes down to one thing. I was willing to sacrifice everything to be a good musician. And I wasn't really sacrificed that much to be able to count, because I was pretty sure calculators were here to stay. And, um, and, uh, and, and now, now here's the point. The point is, is that we will sacrifice for what we value. We'll sacrifice for what we value. Isn't this amazing to me that, we're, and that the economy is the worst that it's been in 70 years and you still have a hard time finding a, a parking spot at the mall? Isn't that odd? Like the mall is still, everybody's broke, but the mall is still full. You know, like isn't that weird? The football games are still selling out. Like it, it's so interesting to me. Uh, I find it interesting that very few people have time to read. But the average person watches the average person watches 37 hours of television a week. I talk to guys who don't have time to read the Bible, but 50% of men spend at least three hours a day playing video games. Um, I read the same study. Um, this is I'll tell you this real quick, just because I find it fascinating. Same study that I read: about 50% of men spend three hours a day playing video games. Uh, one out of three married men say they prefer video games to sex. Guys, let me just talk to you for a second. Um, If you're married and you prefer video games to sex, can I just tell you this? You're doing something wrong, okay? You got to buy a book or a manual or something to fix that problem because something's not going right, all right? And um, because if you're getting more pleasure out of playing Super Mario than playing, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, needless to say, there's a problem, okay? Um, I have no idea how I'm going to transition back to that, to my point. Ah, yes, sacrifice. See how that goes perfectly. It's such a smooth, seamless transition. Um, uh, but, you know, sacrifice really is the vehicle that, that God uses to bring about change. Um, because, you know, what I, I, you re, if you read the scriptures, you know what's so amazing to me? is that God uses givers, not takers. I find this so fascinating. God gets a hold of someone's life, changes their life, and they become someone um, who, who is a giver, whether, of whatever it is. They, just get, they get serious about, about giving. And you say, well, is this referring to finances or other things? It's referring to everything. Is it referring to finances? Yes. Let me read you something um, interesting uh, in the book of Second Samuel, since we were talking about threshing floors earlier. 
It says, On that day, Gad, who was a prophet, went to King David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up, as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Aruna looked up and he saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went down, bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy, his th- to buy your threshing floor, King David said, so that I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. And here are the oxen... <clears throat> For the burnt offering. And here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all of this to the king. And Aruna, Aruna said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But, but the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. Isn't that so interesting that he says, I can't give to the Lord something that costs me nothing. And yet we do that all the time. You know, we don't remember how much God has changed our lives. And, and, and that's the reason why we don't sacrifice. But when someone recognizes how much God has changed them, how much God has sacrificed for them, it becomes very easy to sacrifice. But when we don't, We may give, but never to the point where it actually inconveniences us. And you know, this principle is not just true when it comes to finances. It's true with anything. You You want change to happen in your marriage? Sacrifice. Sacrifice for your spouse. Don't wait for them to do something. You do something. You want God to change your career? Then give the company that you work for the very, very best that you have. Not just, oh, I'm going to do the minimum that I get paid for. That's that's not the way to do it. You sacrifice and you watch what happens. You want your relationship with God to change? If you say, well, it's stale. I don't feel like I'm growing. It's not like it used to be. Here's what you do. Sacrifice something that's consuming your time and give that to God in service, obedience and time devoted to him. Gideon was called to deliver Israel. And the first thing that God that he did that God told him to do was to sacrifice. And it wasn't just any sacrifice. It was a sacrifice to restore the worship of God in Israel. And he sacrificed to the Lord and he tore down the altars of the false gods that had been created. Now, to me, I find that so fascinating. He didn't just set up an altar to the Lord and just create like a little food court of gods that you could worship. It's not what he did. Instead, he tore down the altars of those false gods and used the materials to create an altar to the true and living God. And the truth of the matter is is that when God changes a person's life and he invites that person to clean house in their lives and to get rid of the idols that they've been worshiping, because there's no change if we're still going to worship idols and keep the idols in our lives that we have been worshiping and giving our best time and attention to. And listen, I know that some of the backgrounds that some of us come from, some of us come from a background when we talk about idols, we're talking about we're speaking of idols metaphorically. We're talking about people that like, you know, they worship money or they worship, um, you know, sex or or they worship career or something. But some of us come from a background where when we talk about worshiping idols, we're speaking very literally, aren't we? Because some of us come from a background where in our family or in us personally, there's been santeria, there's been witchcraft, there's been voodoo, there's been all kinds of things. And make no mistake, my friends, when we talk about this, we're talking, uh, this is idolatry. 
The Bible says it's the worship of demons, and it's satanic. And I can't say it any plainer than that. And here's what it takes. If you want God to work in your life, and you've still got that stuff in your house, here's what you've got to do. You've got to get rid of it. We get calls in our office um, from time to time of people who say that they, they've got the stuff in their house and they don't know what to do with it. And we say, here's what we want you to do. You put it all in a trash bag, bring it to our office. We know how to handle stuff like this. Because we just take it out in the dumpster in the back. That's pretty much how we handle stuff like that. Um, why? Because it's just an idol. It's just an idol. But see, the issue is this, is that, you know what, I love what happens in, in, in the hearts and lives of people who say, I'm going to take this stuff and I'm going to get rid of it because I want nothing to do with it because I don't worship those gods anymore. I don't serve those idols anymore. God does a radical thing in the lives of those people. Is it an easy step? No. Sometimes it's scary. That's why the Bible says that Gideon was afraid. And that's why he did it at night, because at the time he wasn't man enough to do it during the day. And listen, but this is where we need courage. Listen, courage is the, is, isn't that there's no fear. Courage is saying that I'm going to move ahead in spite of the fact that there's fear. Because if you want God to change you, it's going to take courage, it's going to take trust, it's going to take sacrifice, but you and I will never regret sacrificing anything to God because the Bible teaches us in Hebrews chapter 11 that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And let me tell you what happens next. This is the last part we're going to look at today. Look at verse 28. It says, And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar torn down and the wooden image beside it was cut down and the second bull that was offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, Who could have done this thing? And they inquired and they said it was Gideon, the son of Joash, who's done this. And then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he's torn down the altar of Baal. And he's cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to those who stood against him, will you plead for Baal? Will you save him? Let the one who pleads for him be put to death by, by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he's torn down his altar. And if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing I want to share with you this morning. And that is that God uses past experience to change us. What was Gideon's challenge? He thought it was his family. The very first thing that we read about Gideon is he says, hey, you don't, I can't save Israel. Don't you know who my family is? And the thing that we learn from this is that Gideon's dad is the ringleader of this Baal worship. And if you haven't been with us, we've talked about this in the past, but Baal was the god of rain and thunder and lightning. He's the god that you prayed to if you wanted a great harvest. Asherah is the other god that's here but not mentioned. Because it says that there's the altar of Baal and then there's the, the wooden image that's next to it. They had what was called the, the Asherah poles. In fact, I have a picture here of an Asherah pole of what was, uh, the, this would be put next to the, uh, the altar of Baal. And this is people, the, what they would do to, uh, Asherah was the goddess of sexuality and the goddess of fertility. And this is the way people would commit all kinds of sexual sin in front of this pole as their means of worshiping um, the gods, uh, worshiping Asherah. See, and you thought pole dancing was something new. Um, it's 3,500 years old. 
Um, by the way, I did read this. I did. Re- sorry. Sorry. Um, uh, I read this in the Palm Beach Post yesterday, so you can read it for yourself. But check this out. Um, there was a guy uh, that was this, this guy in Palm, Be- Palm Beach was in a strip club. And um, this girl is, is dancing. This is a true story. I, I can't make this stuff up because it's in the paper. Um, the, the, she's dancing. And this girl, is, as she's dancing, she feels someone touch her. And so she turns around. As she turns around, this guy that was sitting there, that the girl's in front of her, turns around and the heel of her high heel goes into his eye. And cru- wow, everybody did this at all at the same time. That's fascinating. Um, and crushes the guy's eye socket. This happens like two years ago. The reason it was in the paper is because they got a settlement, and the settlement was $615,000, which apparently is all being given to him in $1 bills. That's the part I found interesting. Uh, no, I'm kidding about that part. Um, I'm kidding about that part. If you don't know what that means, talk to someone later. Um, but <laughs> I, my wife is in the first service, and she said, you know, Bob, sometimes you take it just a little over the top. And uh, so I, I do apologize if I took it just a little over the top. And uh, but so anyway, I so say don't go to those places because you may lose an eye. That's the moral of the story. Um, that's the moral of the story. Um, but <laughs> OK, in the very smooth transition from here. Um, but <laughs> boy, and I had already told that story. And it still makes me laugh. Um, but here's, here's the important thing to note. Um, and this is the thing that's really important for, for us. Gideon says, I can't be used by God because don't you know who my family is? We're the least in the tribe of Manasseh and I'm the least in, in my family. And so there's no way that, you can, that God could use me. Listen, can I just share this with you? Um, many of us come from, from messed up backgrounds. Many of us come from broken homes and broken families. And, and uh, you know, there, these are things that we can't change. You know, you cannot change what the things that have happened in the past. Um, there are things that, that, that happened in your family. There's things that have happened to you that you have absolutely no control over. And the thing is, is that sometimes, even though they might be things that we would say we're ashamed of, and we would say that there's nothing I can do, that that must be the thing that disqualifies me from God doing something great in my life. Can I tell you that just the opposite is true? is that God wants to use the very thing, the very pain that you've experienced in your life. God wants to use that and turn that into good. In fact, we might be able to say it this way, that God wants to turn your misery and turn it into your ministry. You see, I'm amazed when I see people who have been sexually abused in their past turn around and now counsel people who who have gone through the same terrible things. I'm amazed when I see people who have gone bankrupt and lost everything have learned what the Bible has to say concerning how to be a good steward of what God entrusts to us and then turn around and teach that to other people so that they don't have to go through what these people have gone through. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. People ask me why I'm so passionate about marriage and family and why, you know, this date night thing that we're doing and, and why I want to do it and why we try to spend at least one, a couple of weeks every year talking about marriage. And here's the reason. I'm passionate about it because my whole family is just riddled with divorce. My parents, my grandparents, every aunt, every uncle that I have, all divorce. Every single one of them. And while it's something that pains me greatly, it's something that God has used in my life as an area of passion now to help couples, to say you don't ever have to go there. It doesn't have to be that way. You see, God wanted Gideon to face his past head on 
Because that was the only way he was going to be able to lead. Because something happened the moment that he tore down the altar of Baal. He stopped being a victim and started being an overcomer. He stopped being someone that things happened to, and he started being a leader who initiated things. And see, too many times we give too many excuses as to why God can't use us and why we can't achieve the goals and the dreams that he's put in our hearts. Oh, you see, but my family wants me to do something else. Hey, tear down that altar. Oh, but see, I think I would disappoint them if I didn't do that. Tear down that altar and do the thing that God wants you to do. You know, um, people come to Christ here every week. And you know, and we, we have baptisms every several weeks. We have baptisms. And you know, the number one reason that we see people not get baptized or wait a long time to get baptized, they say, well, you've got to understand. You see, my mom, um, she, you know, she kind of thinks a little bit differently about baptism. And I know that she'd get really upset if I, if I got baptized. And I say, you know, I, I think it's commendable to want to honor your parents. At the same time, do you realize that when you do that, you're setting up an altar and worshiping your mom? You're setting up an altar and worshiping the approval of your parents? And you're, and you're saying, for some reason, disobeying God is okay, but I would never want to disappoint them? Listen, my friends, honor your parents in the Lord, for that is right. That's what the Bible says. But never to the point of disobeying God. Baptism is something that the Bible says is the pledging of a good conscience towards God. When you come to know Jesus as your Savior, baptism is the first order of business. And you know why? Because it's a simple step of obedience. It's a simple step. Galatians chapter 1 says this, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And whenever we put something else ahead of obeying God, we're creating an idol and creating an altar to some other God. And here, the same thing that God tells Gideon is the same thing God would tell you and me. We've got to tear it down. And that's why Jesus would say these words in Matthew chapter 10. He would say, anyone who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's what it boils down to. If you want God to change you, we've got to submit ourselves to him. And submitting ourselves to him is taking all of the other altars that we've built to all of these other idols and tearing them down. Putting an altar up for him so that God can alter us. Because that's what we want, right? We want God to change us and transform us. So we've got to tear down the altars, whatever they might be, so God can do the thing that only He can do, which is alter us. Let's pray together. And Father, we want to thank You for that work that You're doing in us. And I just pray and ask that You would alter us, that You would work in us, that you would transform us as we tear down the idols and tear down the altars so that you can alter us and transform us into your image, the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.